My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. And we're back. Welcome to the Prison Post. My name is Richard Morellis. I want to uh, welcome back my colleague, Jason Bryant, uh, my co-host, my colleague, my friend, my brother. We've been gone a while. As you know, uh, I always have some kind of adjective for him. I got three of them this time because uh, it's just been a while. The always Muse, the ingenious, the colloquial Jason Bryant. What's going on, bro? Good to be Muse, with you. Muse, Muse. That's, that's a new one. I, yeah. I, I think you should add in jet lagged considering we, uh, last weekend we took a trip to Long Beach. That was great. For, uh, we participated in the CEA pre-conference. Um, Correctional Education Association pre-conference. That was really an amazing experience. But Muse, I, I like that. I'm going to have to... Muse. Uh, I, I had to tap into the French there about yeah. sparkling, like that Long Beach water. <laughs> um, but uh, we have a phenomenal guest with us today. We're super excited to welcome uh, our first guest, originally from New York, now residing in Ohio. And, um, you know, I have, a, I have a mentor, Donald, and her name's Christina Lee. She lives out in North Carolina, but she's originally from Oakland. And she always says... The West Coast is the best coast, but uh, <laughs> I'm, not sure I'm not sure you'd agree with that. But um, but uh, certainly, what remains true are there. There's some phenomenal, brilliant, amazing human beings, world changers around the world. You you were one of the people that I met. Actually, the first guest also that I met on Twitter, and uh, we started talking. We've been on a couple of, of Zooms and uh, doing some amazing work uh, nationally. Um, I know that you uh, hold a Donald Wiggins Jr. You hold a, a JD, a MPA, and you're the co-founder and director of strategic initiatives and policy at OFUPAC. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, you did. Uh, OFUPAC, uh, however you say it, it okay. is one and the same. I know that you're a writer, a researcher, a reformer, uh, a futurist. And I noticed on your Twitter page, you said uh, j- a journalist, maybe. So, uh, <laughs> but um, I know that. I also, when I asked you about a bio, you're one of the first people that said, man, it's not about me. You know, it's not about me. It's about we. And um, you said, I'm just another cog. I'm just another I'm just doing my part as a cog in the grand um, in the I'm just doing my part in the grand as a in the grand cog of history. And Jason sometimes reminds reminds me of that point as well. That it's one of the secrets of life. It's not Mm -hmm. about we. it's not about me. It's about we. And uh, if when people begin to live from that perspective, as, as you have uh, the miraculous, the phenomenal, um, the world change can happen. So I just want to welcome you to the prison post, Donald. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Definitely. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to, to give you a moment to talk a little bit about your team at Offupac, what a little bit about your organization. When after the show, I'll definitely share the links of how people can reach out to you, but maybe I, I had the pleasure of meeting some of your team there, especially Sabrina. Will you pick up the torch? My name is Sabrina Jordan. I am the mother of Jamarco McShane. Jamarco was killed in Moraine, Ohio, October 20th, 2017, by two peace officers, John Howard and Jerry Knight, while Jamarco was asleep in front of his home in his car. Jamarco's biggest achievement was his own son who he adored, who he raised from birth and was taken from his son's life at such an early age. 
I raise my fist in power. My pain is my purpose, and I am passing the torch. Will you help us power this movement for true transformative justice in Ohio? Will you carry the torch? Uh, her story is in my heart, but um, yeah, maybe you could share a little bit about some of the folks you work with. Absolutely. Uh, so OFU PAC was started by Sabrina Jordan, Emily Cole, and myself, Donald Williams Jr., and we recognized a need to transform Ohio's civil and criminal justice system. And since we started, that has transformed and taken off in a very unique and phenomenal way. Um, Sabrina Jordan lost her son to, he was sleeping in his car outside his house. Um, cops come up, knock on the window of the car. They have an interaction, short, long and sweet of it, or not so sweet, we should say, is law enforcement officers end up opening fire and killing her son. Uh, about a year, two years later, her other son ends up um, being lost to gun violence or street violence as well. So this is a phenomenally strong, just vivacious woman that can, can ever meet. Like If she doesn't tell you her story, you would not know that she has dealt with something so tragic and heavy. It, she always says she doesn't believe in justice. Justice died when her, her, her children died, but she does believe in like a better tomorrow. And that's me paraphrasing, so I, I don't want to describe or subscribe specific words to her. Um, it, it, she believes in a world in which we can all get along, we can all move ahead, and everyone is held accountable for their actions. She believes in transformation and also in just uh, evolution. And I think it's her spirit that really has drawn, drawn me more into the movement as well as I know her spirit is one of the reasons that I've remained in Ohio. Um, Emily Cole, I went to graduate school with her. She studied together for at the John Glenn School of Public Affairs at the time. Now it's the John Glenn College of Public Affairs. So it did receive college status. That was uh, really great. It increased the value of our degrees. Didn't decrease the value of our debt, but that's okay. That's another issue. Uh, Emily Cole and I really didn't speak much when we were in grad school. I knew her. She was always like about her business. She, as she will tell you, like she was in and she was out. Um, she graduated a semester early. We stayed in touch via social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, liking each other's posts, just remaining kind of loosely engaged. Last year, we worked together on a ballot measure to end qualified immunity here in Ohio. After two unsuccessful temp attempts, the coalition decided that it was best for us to uh, go our separate ways and continue on in our good work and our fight to actually transform the system. And out of that grew OFU PAC. Next thing you know, we were working on First Amendment protection work here in Ohio, where the General Assembly is working to criminalize with House Bill 109, criminalized protesting and general assembly rights as well. So that that has been our kind of ramp up of how we got started, how we all know each other and how I got to know the team and the work that we're doing. I, I know we're going to get into some of the details of your work, Donald, but one of the questions that I like just is at the top of my head right now is where does your passion come from for this work? Like, where did it start out? Um, what drove you into this profession and, and this calling that you have? 3B. Uh, so uh, I remember my life, um, and I say 3B because that was my apartment number in New York City housing. Prior to that, it was 60. And growing up, I remember looking out my window and seeing 
directly across the street, there was a, a nightclub. Uh, and then right uh, adjacent to the other, well, across the other street, there was a condo that was going up and the construction never finished. And I would sit in my room and I would question, well, you have economic development and these nice buildings and new designs and an architectural like facelift, but then you have projects, right? How we even talk about it, or, or then you have housing, and then you have 3B. And it's 3B in my apartment has a leaky ceiling that's flaky, despite the fact that we've called maintenance time and time and time again, sometimes once a day, sometimes once a week. And they have a six month backlog because of either a lack of material, maintenance can't come out, don't have central supplies, current settlements, current uh, ongoing litigation, whatever the reason may be. And I always ask myself, then, how is it that two different worlds exist less than 25 feet apart? How is it that some neighborhoods or some buildings, some people receive architectural facelifts and rejuvenation and then others don't? Why is it that housing projects are constructed like prisons? Like there's a playground in the middle of the housing project and it was four buildings, one here, one here, one here, one here as if it, they were centuries, centurions, and then we could only be in the courtyard that's inside, always to be monitored, always to be watched, always to know what was going on. And those questions perplexed me and stayed with me and led me to actually want to study political science is what drove like, well, this doesn't seem quite right. Like, so it, it's, it's, it rains on the just and unjust alike, but it, there, there's there's more to it than that. There, there has to be something wrong. I want to understand the, the hows, the whys, the whats, and, and, and be able to do something about it. When I was, I want to say, 18, uh, Assemblywoman Grace Ming, now Congresswoman Grace Ming, comes knocking on my door, and I'm just, like, super excited. Like, this is phenomenal. The first elected, potential elected official at the time that, I'm, that I've met, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, you're Grace Ming. You're running for New York State Assembly. Uh, like, what are you going to do about education policy? What do you think about environmental policy? Just rattling off questions, like super excited. Like, what do you think about this part of the education code? Because I was the nerdy kid that actually read New York City's education code to figure out how to still obtain an advanced regents diploma, but get out of my foreign language requirements, which would have taken, required me to take two years. So I, I was the person that's, hey, I, I know there's always, if there's a will, there's a way. And if there's a way, there's a law. Um, so that, that was kind of my thinking at the time. She's really, so she's like, wow, like you're really smart. Uh, if I get elected, do you, do you want to come in and, and learn and intern with me? And I'm just like, yes, that, that would be great. I close the door and I'm just like, oh, whatever. That's not going to go anywhere. I, I'm a New Yorker, right? So it, it's all great. Like she was being nice. She was being cordial. It's like, that's sweet. You know, great lady. Hope she gets elected. I go to go downstairs and I go to vote and Ida Hawkins is there and the lady who kind of helped get me and was my first exposure to politics. She was the one who said it's about me and not me. Mm. And that's something that stuck with me over the years. Um, I go downstairs and I meet her and she's like, oh, there you are. We had you on our worksheet, but we forgot to mark you off. So like they mark me, I go and vote. This is the 2018 election, of course. First, like it, it's, I'm nervous. I'm gonna pull the lever. Like I'm like, okay, I'm voting for president. Who I'm voting for? Like straight down the line, uh, is this important? Like, what's gonna happen? This my vote changes the whole world. Of course, you know, it's a bit myopic, but at the same time, super excited. Yeah. 
don't cast my lever. Next, they pull my pull the lever, leave the voting booth. Two months later, I'm an intern for Assemblywoman Grace Ming, and then that starts my both uh, practical and real experience, I would say, in politics and understanding how things are done and how the world is constructed. And, and boy, it was a whirlwind experience and, and of learning and of understanding the conscious choices that are being made every day at various levels of government because it, it, it's it's business. And yeah. politics is nothing more than a, a, a giant business. That's a powerful testimony. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Just listening to your story, um, it reminds me of you know one of our organizational values at crop is proximity now you know in in the line of our work basically what we're saying is that it's the people who are closest to the pro to the pain points that have the best solutions often uh to them so you know your, your your testimony about your proximity to some of the struggles of marginalized communities and the inequities that exist in this country like that was literally your resource um for your career that that provided the trajectory and just thinking about the value that you're adding right now. Um, you know, it, it all came from you actually living it. So I appreciate that deeply. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Donald, what would you say is the vision of OFU PAC or, or the purpose? And maybe tie that in with something we talked about yesterday about universal suffrage and some of the points um, that are important to you there, but um, like overall goals, vision, purpose there. Our vision is a world where every person, child, family, individual can thrive and become and realize their full self and full human capabilities. Uh, our mission is to transform the criminal and civil justice system within one generation. So we wanted to create a smart goal, something that was specific, something that was measurable, you know, that it's something that we could actually move towards and say at the end of the generation, measured it as 20 years, what did we accomplish? And what now? Like what? How do have we moved? In, how have we moved the needle? So our mission is also our starting point for our evaluation. Come the end of the twenty-year time period, of course, there'll be more interim evaluations and assessments that go on as we make progress towards our strategic plan. But our, our vision really is just to transform how things are done, to create a human-centered approach. Of going back to our earlier conversation, as we talk about economics, we do not have a humanity economy. And so we have a transactional economy. If you want a humanity economy, and instead of a world, why can't we envision a world without prisons? Because, well, then everyone thinks all the bad people are going to just be running around. And this is like the um, Gotham, uh, Arkham Asylum in, in, in Batman. Everyone's just going crazy, like the world's running around. And so that that's the belief. We don't, when we envision the future, we always envision the negative or in the absence thereof. It, it's kind of like human rights or, or, or constitutional rights. We only know and can define them by the absence or, or, or the struggle thereof. We, we don't have an, an intrinsic and, 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 and I, I despise the word intrinsic. So let me take that back because intrinsic is in of itself has no value. Um, but it, we, we lack a internal sort of understanding of what our future can be and will be, not with violence, so not with crime, but where where it is where is it that we're going? Where is it that we want to be? What does that look like? What does that feel like? What will that experience taste like and smell like? When I'm, every time I have realized 
in hindsight that every time I have been successful in reaching a goal is because I took the time to sit and imagine what that goal would be. Mm. How would I feel? Like, uh, am I going to be excited? Um, am I going to be overjoyed? So I took the bar exam four times, four times, I tell you. I mean, most people would give up. Uh, I've even had professors that say, it's just like, oh, there he is, there he did. I, I refuse to give up. I, I was bent, but unbowed. You know, I was at the end of my rope, but I tied a knot. And on the fourth time, what I did differently amongst how I studied, the, the last two times I came the closest and the last time I did pass. But what I did the fourth time was I actually would practice receiving my results and what my facial reaction would be. Okay. <laughs> like I actually practice every morning and, and I would get up and I would like go into the bathroom and sometimes rehearse with myself and I would scream and I would gesticulate my face and figure out what words I would say. I mean, now, of course, it didn't play out the, that way during the morning I found out I passed. I was so excited. And my friend and best friend from law school and neighbor who lived down the way, um, she was only a block, not a block, but lived in a little complex and she was right there. I opened the door, forgetting that I was like naked, popped out of bed when I see my results. I'm like getting ready to walk out my house, like butt booty naked, uh, run to tell her like I passed, came back inside. Uh, all the practice went out the window. But the point is, we don't envision what the future looks like and feels like. And how does that fit in to the work that we're doing now with respect to universal suffrage and any qualified immunity? It's to help individuals begin to envision what that future looks like. So universal suffrage is that campaign to give voting rights to incarcerated persons and to lower the voting age to 16-year-olds. And ending qualified immunity is so that those who are governed and those who are doing the governing are actually on parity. I wanted to bring up a chart here that, that was part of the conversation. Um, how many people are locked up in the United States? And... Um, would you speak to um, you know how it how it applies here to the conversation that we're we're having? Absolutely. So overall, there are 1.9 million people that are locked up in the United States, and that's what this chart actually depicts. 1.9 million. So 1.9 million alone, just to put this in context, is larger than the population of Montana, which is 1,104,271 individuals. It's larger than the population of Wyoming, 578,803. If you do the math, that means the current incarcerated population is bigger than two states, Montana and Wyoming. Now, if you look at it from an electoral standpoint, that's six electoral votes alone that can be assigned to the prison population. Presumably, all were in one location or all of the, their votes were aggregated and, and counted towards, or, and they participate in the electoral college as a aggregated body. So six electoral votes. Six electoral votes actually would have made Gore president, even with what happened in Florida. Six mm -hmm. electoral votes can actually change, would have changed the future of the nation. If we had Gore as president, then who would have come after him? The pendulum tends to swing. Would it have went Republican? Would it not have went Republican? What would have happened with respect to 9-11, global affairs, world affairs? Would climate change have as much saliency as it does right now? So... 1.9 million people in this country are currently sitting in a cage, are sitting in dilapidated conditions because that's what they are, are sitting in a Kafkaian version of hell. We essentially remove them 
from time and space geographically as well as temporally and place them in abstraction and suspense for whatever period of time that they serve in jail. Of that 1.9 million people that when you look at that high and murder, let's look at the crimes that's being committed. Let's look at, we never ask why, the criminologists, sociologists, psychologists will ask why, like why, what's going on in the mind, what's going on in the society, what's going on with the crime. But we don't incorporate that into the law itself. We don't reestablish new defenses. We don't invigorate the process and actually go and try to alleviate poverty uh, or root causes. Instead, what do we do? We criminalize individuals because in America, there's only two things that control the population, criminalization and taxation. If you don't like something, you tax it. If you don't like so, if still you don't like something, you get too out of control, you throw them in, in, in a jail cell or into a prison cell. And out of sight, out of mind, problem is completely done. 1.9 million people, I can't keep saying that enough. 1.9 million people is the size of two state populations. 1.9 million people, and I have some facts here, is larger than the population of um, Baharan, which has 1.526 million people. Larger than the population of Estonia, which has 1.2 million people. Larger than the population of Fiji, which has 939,000 people. Larger than the population of the Maldives, which has 390,000 people. Larger than the population of Iceland, which has 354,000 people. Larger than the population of Barbados, which has 301,865 people that live there. Larger than the population of the U.S. Virgin Islands, which has 105,870 individuals. That is every portion of the world that I've touched on. A country from, from coast to coast and around the world and back again. And you're telling me that the United States houses more people in cages than some countries actually have. Imagine if everyone in prison was just given their own country. At one point mm. in time, it happened, told Australia. Right. Let's not forget that. Or given their own state. Uh, uh, imagine if every incarcerated person, their votes were aggregated in a block and they were assigned two senators and then sent to sent to D.C. What does that look like? We're talking about giving making D.C. a state or we're still kind of in flux with Puerto Rico, so I'll, I'll leave that one alone as an example. But imagine if uh, we took gave every incarcerated person in this prison, aggregated their vote, and then they were able to elect a senator amongst their own and send them to D.C. Do you know what that would look like? I mean, Manchin or what's happening in West Virginia would not be the swing vote in the Democratic Party anymore. Instead, individuals who are incarcerated. We can't have conversations about the future without having conversations with the people that we have deemed to be the problem child or, or the, the problem in ills and ilts of society. In, in jail visits, I've visited people in jail. I've looked into the eyes of murderers and guess what? I've seen a soul. I still see hope. I still see yeah. things have happened. We mm-hmm. want to hold things in abstraction as if like we're incapable of these great evils ourselves, but yet and still on one hand, we're saying the Second Amendment right is there to protect against tyranny and protect the rest. And then on another hand, we're saying, oh, murder is bad, but yet and still the people that are murdering are doing such to survive. But then you're saying your constitutional rights and abstraction may be taken away, but someone's actual ability to survive in the real world is taken away or not equated. It, it, it's kind of perplexing and mind-blowing that we continue to allow ourselves to go on in this milieu of the society. So let me ask you this, because this is fascinating to me and you know part of our our mission is to help redefine the purpose of prisons in america right like uh you know in california to say the least but i i think i could argue that it's probably true across the country that the purpose of prison has been up until now to punish right so looking at these astronomical numbers we're talking about 1.9 million people who are incarcerated 
what is it in your opinion that people must do, that society must do to justify the locking of other human beings away in cages? What what do you mean by the question? So so okay, so let me let me let me go a little bit further. Um, you know, our experience, Richard and I served over 20 years incarceration. Uh, I think it's 43 between the two of us. And a lot of the times, you know, our interactions with staff were, were not very friendly. Like we were often treated as second class citizens. And like in my experience, there was something you spoke about this a little earlier, there was something very transactional, right? Mm-hmm. So they were employed, they had, you know, pretty good salaries, strong union support, and their treatment of us was justified because there was this understanding that we were less than, mm-hmm. that, that we didn't have the same value as the taxpaying citizens who didn't commit crimes, right? So just from your perspective and, and, and your work and your, your, in your opinion, like what is some of the transactional nature that goes on in society that justifies the incarceration of 1.9 million citizens? Poverty our economic setup i mean we we get so hung up on capitalism socialism communism whatever ism it is of the week or our ill or boogeyman that we're trying to fight one way or another but we don't really sit to talk about what those economic systems look like china does not have a communist system it's like communist some forms of communism with a dictator uh russia doesn't have a federation system it's like a, a federated system with a dictator cuba doesn't have a communist system it's like communism with a dictator that's not true communism according to Karl marx and frederick engel that's not true of federation of a system for federated system for russia it's not a true socialist system anywhere in the world so we don't have pure systems in any abstraction but we actually have elements of all when you think about it. What's the farm bill? We pay farmers not to grow certain crops or make sure that they're insured against crop loss. That That's socialism at, at its core, right? We, we pay people or provide social assistance to individuals who can't eat. That's communism at its core. So we, we, we take ideals we don't like and we slap an ugly label on it, whichever ism will or be the big bad boogeyman and scare people in order to be able to get them to capitulate to uh, the American version, the American economic system of capitalism. Now, by no means or stretch of the imagination should we even take this to mean that I don't love America. I do think America is the land of milk and honey and is the land of opportunity. But if we're going to continue to lead the world, we have to get our own house of affairs in order because we can't fight a dual front war with what's happening internationally and continuing to get worse. And then internally, while the media may have turned the attention away, there's still 1.9 million people in prison cells. There's still a growing environmental problem, even if you don't want to look at an environmental problem, and a resource scarcity problem in this country. There's still a growing gap in economic inequality. So what do we have to do is we really need to address essentially just economic, the economic foundations and underpinnings of society. We need to address Maslow's hierarchy, Maslow's basic hierarchy of needs, housing, food, clothing. We are no longer at a point where people need to starve or where people need to be homeless or where people need to be clothless or not have new and clean, fresh clothes. And that's not to say that at other points in history that needed to happen. Yes, it did happen. Yes, it it was a necessity also of technology, dispersal of populations and how, how we were set up. But I can see more so throughout 
human history, why poverty did persist or why there was certain segments. At this point in time, we have printers that's able to print houses. You have 3D printers that are getting to the point of being able to print food. I mean, you can make clothes like, like this. We have drop shipping. The, so now it's just a matter of hoarding of resources. Who can't afford what in this whole notion of, well, you have to earn it. Meritoc language of meritocracy or I have to punish you. Uh, I find this very interesting that you have to earn to survive in America, but yet and still someone else has a right to punish you. So I can do what I want up until it infringes upon all of these other principles and, and kind of economic laws, as we call them, but I call it an economic blockade based upon cultural norms. Uh, I mean, America is a melting pot, but a lot of our conflicts are because of cultural economics. Right? And, and poverty in and of itself and low income is a, is a, is a culture, is a mind frame. Anyone that grew up without or, or have some sort of dimension of examining probably through a multi-dimensional framework can understand one another it crosses racial lines it's it's that you know, white person who grew up in the trailer park that black person who grew up in the projects you you may still have racial differences but you understand something innate about what is it like to be in a state of deprivation constantly struggling and essentially hoping just for hope's sake and sometimes not even able to envision a future except like hey having more months than money for once Though so, uh, most of the time, it, or excuse me, having more money than month, because most of the time, most people have more month than they do money. So it's nice to have more money than month. So we need to change how we are economically structured. Um, and, and, and the way in which we do that as it pertains to universal suffrage is by making sure everyone has a voice. It, we, the, the ballot, whether we like our choices or not as they exist, that that is a complicated result of ballot access laws, our electoral system, um, the political, two major political parties, um, campaign finance, campaign finance laws, and general understanding of like the political arena or political industry as a business. However, that aside, we need to make sure everyone can actually talk. Everyone can say, I'm voting for this person, because when you vote, your vote is your way of saying, these are the things I value, these are the things I care about, these are the things that I believe need to be fixed. Um, I mean, I'm incarcerated, we need to fix something. Like, hey, what about these walls here? What about plumbing? So I, I think that's the, the beginning of it is addressing our economic house What's and domestic your, agenda. Sorry, Rich, I know you want to get in, but I have questions for him. What's some of the pushback you've gotten from you know, opposition against universal suffrage? So because it's two components of lowering voting age to 16, as well as guaranteeing individuals who are incarcerated or with a felony conviction, never lose that right to vote. It, it's been, I support one side or another has been one of them. I support lowering voting age to 16 year olds, but not for the incarcerated population. Or I support giving voting rights to the incarcerated population, but not lowering the voting age. Um, it, it's gonna, if we, either way, if you're gonna end up with more liberals, because everyone's just going to go blue and go to the left, um, whether it's incarcerated or individuals who are 16, lowering voting age to 16 year old, 16 year years old. And the other one would be that 16 year olds lack the, the mental and emotional capacity to be able to engage uh, in the civic demos with the seriousness that's actually needed. And what, what Right when Rich, Rich jumped in, he froze. 
<laughs> leaving space for more questions from Jay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I was, we had a conversation about this a little earlier, Richard and I, and you know, I, he asked me the question, he's like, should 16 year olds be able to vote? And I said, I wonder if they, you know, have the, like you said, the, the mental sobriety to engage in that, that level of civic, civic duty. But then I asked myself, what type of limitations am I putting on our youth? It, it kind of prompted this question myself. And I think that, that also spills over to the conversation about the currently incarcerated, currently incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. Like what type of limitations do people have about you know, individuals who made a poor choice were incarcerated? You know, that is the punishment, right? They're incarcerated, they're severed from society to say that they're not capable of, you know, participating in society in a mean, meaningful way through voting. Absolutely. Uh, to, to respond to that, uh, I would say, one, we have shown now the impact physiologically of poverty on the human body. Too much poverty actually can lead to a state of continued duress, uh, a, a state of continued psychological angst and anxiety. And so that impacts your ability to, to grow. It impacts your ability to learn. It impacts your ability to process information in a rational way. So if a person, full-grown man, woman, non-binary individual, can have their brain impacted just by their life conditions, and the reason I always go to poverty is because that's what jails and prisons are filled with. People who are deprived of some sort of resource or resources that are essential to the human development. Why should those individuals who, just as many individuals that are in prison that way, there are just as many that's outside. Let's look at where there are high poverty rates, Toledo, Ohio, look at what the AMI is. Let's look at high poverty rates for Southern California, Los Angeles. Let's look at the high poverty rates across the board and individuals are acting in desperation for resources, in desperation for knowledge, in desperation of for survival. So the same individuals and, and I'm going to say animals that we kind of ache in people who are incarcerated too also exist and are still roaming free on the outside. You know, some of them in the halls of Congress, but that's a different story. Mm. Um, and, and if they're able to vote, then why not 16-year-olds? They're at least at a point in time where they're receiving information on a daily basis. Though. Their learning processes are probably better than that of any individual, freed or not free. They're, the ability to really think about issues and to vote intuitively, again, that, that word, but to vote from the gut is, is, is there's something genuine about it. They're able to combine knowledge and emotional and, and life experience and vote in a specified way. Uh, I think that we would need to, and the reason the issue is forged with 16-year-olds and incarcerated persons is to bring together those that society has deemed a problem with the future problem solvers. Mm. And you, you now give the, the problems like, these are all the things that were wrong. So when you vote for someone, you're voting for a person to fix your problem. You're voting for someone to uphold the values you believe in. Either continue your current situation or fix it. And 16 year olds, like these are the people when they're gonna vote for like, okay, well, what, what's gonna be best for my future? Crappy future? look at the prospects of a crappy future. Now you can say, oh, yes, I, some pe in, individuals that have been formerly incarcerated will say, you know, we, we need jails, we need prisons. We're not talking about abolition here. We're, we're, we're talking about just recognizing the humanity of individuals and of people. 
Mm-hmm. For them to say, them being the incarcerated you know, population persons, to, to say these are all, I'm voting for candidates that support these values that will transform the world. And 16 year olds say, I'm voting for these values that will move society forward uh, in such a way we can have harmony. And, and, and maybe we will reach a point of no incarcerated individuals. Maybe we'll reach a point where, you know, we are really in Shangri-La, some version thereof. But we, we can't get there until we begin to to dream of what that looks like. It doesn't mean society will be conflict-free. It doesn't mean that crime, per se, will not happen. But how we deal with it, what our response to it will be, and the, the, the root causes that underlie it will actually exist. So uh, sure. I just don't think that the emotional or psychological maturity of 16 year olds is a legitimate or at least a defendable, defensible argument that should be given maximum consideration. Uh, I mean, they, they have better learning processes than individuals who are incarcerated, but they are probably have better associate, associate, associational networks in place. I mean, look at and university in history. Right. They have a better understanding of, of social media platforms, which allows for a different, that divergent sort of viewpoint. I, I think what most people are afraid of is the individuals that are already enfranchised and can already vote is an unknown future. But the future right. started yesterday and we're already starting late. I mean, John Legend said it himself. The future started yesterday and we're already running late. I, I mean, we, we need to get more minds, more bodies into the process. Many hands make light work. It's the same thing with with uh, with voting. Like we, we're, we're broken and fragmented because instead we're just throwing people to the fringes of society and telling people either they don't have the, the, the mental maturity to think and to uh, and to engage, which to me says that individuals individuals who advance that argument to me are saying I don't have the time to teach them. If mm-hmm. you think that that's the case, then you should go out and you should teach six year olds what they need to know in order to vote. They and most well, what, what do they need to know? I mean, you have less than a third of the country actually knows what the three branches of government are, or like how many justices exist on the Supreme Court. So you immigrants who come to this country take a citizenship test and they score higher on the citizenship, citizenship test than American citizens when it's been administered. You, you can Google and find the results of this. So I, I mean, I really don't understand what the aversion to lowering the voting age is, nor do I understand the aversion to recognizing the human rights and dignity that everyone is endowed with, born with, and forever will have that's incarcerated. Yep. So there's, there's an, oh, go ahead, Rich. <laughs> Don't you freeze again this time. Uh, I'm going to get them all in because I know, I know you're a brilliant guy that can keep three or four questions at once. One, all the arguments made against 16-year-olds could be could be made against 18-year-olds mm-hmm. uh, in, in the same way. Um, and the other one is, do you can there be a constitutional amendment to allow um, those who are incarcerated nationally to have the right to vote? Because I know Maine and Vermont allow people in prison to vote, and those are the only two states. But so one, that question, two, um, like what, what is your knowledge of other countries? Do other countries have lower voting ages than America? So to your first question, yes, there can be a constitutional amendment to guarantee incarcerated persons do have the right to vote. Um, you need to find a congressional member in order to introduce the bill. Uh, there was a bill that was introduced last congressional cycle to lower the voting age to 16. That issue still remains salient. Um, 
there's organizations outside of my organization, Ohio Family Unite for Political Action and Change, which is working to build a national coalition uh, that bridges and brings together the lowering voting age crowd, coupled with those who recognize the human rights of incarcerated individuals to vote, to be able to advance both efforts. However, such a bill has not been, or I should say concurrent resolution has not been introduced by either chamber and Congress. Uh, with respect to the first question was, can something be done for nationally to allow incarcerated persons to vote? And your second question, it was, refresh my recollection. About other countries, are other countries yes. a standard of 18? Other countries, Norway, I always go to Norway, which is, I think Barack Obama during his last term or sometime in 2012 said, if we just modeled ourselves after Norway, everything would be better. Uh, um, and, and maybe I'm just putting that in his mouth because he's a genius and it, it, it didn't come from him, but I believe that's the attribution that it deserves to former President Barack Obama. I, I just think citations are very important because, and, and I'll stop for a second to say, we live in a day and age where everyone's playing gotcha oh, he said this, and really someone else said it. So I, I try to make sure any phrases, terminology, or, or nomenclature that I've heard in a specified way is attributed to the proper person, because life is short, and I really don't have time for it, carefully. So I, I, that's the reason you, you'll notice I will take the time and moment to, to give attribution. But Norway allows and recognizes the human rights of incarcerated persons to vote and never takes it away. New Zealand, same thing. Australia, same thing. Except Australia does have a limitation where if you're sentenced for longer than five years, your your right to vote is limited. But after that, it, it's restored as soon as you're released. Um, and there are you know exceptions. Most of the exceptions in other countries are not like American exceptions. Or for example, Ohio's exceptions to the uh, Sunshine Laws, which is like Swiss cheese. There's 32 various reason, ways to get around it. That's how Americans write laws. First, we try to create these dial shells and then we create a whole bunch of other sort of loopholes to that. Usually the dial shells are that there are loopholes for or when it pertains to infringing upon or discovering how people make their money, sources and methods, I always say, are interferes with the economic system as it's currently set up. But there are very few exceptions for, for the poor. There's very few exceptions for um, for behavior and not to, we'll say, comporting your 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 mind, your worldview, and your your mind, psyche, and behaviors and actions to that of the predominant ruling um, class. There's other countries that recognize each individual's humanity. The United Kingdom is another one. I, I said Australia. I said New Zealand. I said Norway. Um, countries in South Africa as well uh, have a lower voting age. The outside of 18. Um, we have, uh, I believe, do, 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 at least 13 countries around the world. Uh, we're not even talking about Western democracies recognize the right to vote beneath the age of 16. And should have a list someplace for I'll come back to you with the uh, exact information, but there, there's countries around the world that already recognize 16-year-olds' right to vote, and also that can, once again, uh, recognize the humanity that every human is born with uh, by virtue of being a human being and never take away their right to vote because they have a principle of reintegration. They have an expectation that incarcerated persons will go free, and also they have 
the individuals that are 16 year olds, they recognize that 16 year olds in rural America are working on farms. Let's not forget mm-hmm. that. I mean, you, you have people driving, flying crop dusters, driving tractors, helping till the fields. Sure. But what about no taxation without representation? So there's that the economic argument for why voting age should be lower to 16. Some individuals would say, well, let's stop there. Only six girls who's working. Okay, fine. Let's continue down. There's also the moral argument of we're making these uh, pay-go sort of decisions that are finance 10, 20, 15, 20, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years into the future that future generations are going to have to carry on their back. Americans are living like Nazarene slaves, and it's not going to change until enough people stop and say, we have to do something different. Right, right. I want to go back to what you were talking about in regards to universal suffrage and age and the incarcerated and just, you know, share a little bit about like our experience. So when Richard and I were incarcerated, um, we participated in a book club where a a local private school brought in uh, students to read literature. You would think that that was like an unlikely combination of individuals, right? You know, people serving time in prison and, you know, largely privileged um, students who are attending you know, an illustrious private school, but there were some amazing things that came about in those conversations. And it was the, it was really the combination of, you know, lived experience of people who had made poor choices, but wanted something new for their lives and wanted to contribute and young people who didn't have the older generation that was willing to sit down and have conversation with them. So it's, it's really interesting to see how like that dyma- dynamic actually played out in our life and how it could play out in a larger scale when you're talking about universal suffrage. Like these two different worlds of people being included in the democratic process of voting and what might come about, like what possibilities could develop from, from these different ways of thinking, these different lived experiences. So I, I just wanted to come back to that because that's really is what, like what we're talking about when we're saying we need to move beyond a transactional way of living and into a transformational way. And Donald, the other the other question I wanted to ask was, you know, the you bring up voting rights for those under the age of 16 and those are incarcerated. Do you believe that the outcome, one of the outcomes of that would lead to less incarceration, that we get that 1.9 million down? How, how does that connect? There's a reason that early on and throughout the actual history and another from the women's suffrage movement to secure the right of women to be able to vote highlighted the importance and rallied around ensuring that they would have access to the ballot. The ballot is their voice. There is a reason that Malcolm X said is either going to be the ballot or the bullet because the ballot was their voice. There's a reason that when we talk about voting rights, we are talking about the fundamental precepts and principles about who gets to participate in the conversation. And the stories that we tell ourselves is a reflection of who we are. And who we are is a reflection of the stories we tell ourselves. So how does it fit in? I don't think that voting rights will be the panacea solution for all of America's ills, but it begins to bring a large number of people together and into the fold and say, you matter, you have a voice, you exercise your voice, what went wrong, get engaged in issue politics, instead of remaining on the fringes or outskirts or in isolation or in obscurity, 
it, it, it allows and empowers individuals to say there's a problem in our communities. I think you'll probably have higher voting turnout as well in prison since you, you know everyone is there, right? So you probably get close to, I would imagine and would hope close to, well, let me not say close to 100% because then I, I may be disappointed, but oh, we'll say closer to 70 or 80%, higher than the national right. average because the site would be located right there. It allows for an envisioning to happen. It allows for new intersectionalities to be explored and it allows for a conversation to start. I, I think that's the beginning because then now people who are in prison, oh, well, why should I vote? Or, or why why does it matter? You then begin to pay more attention to things like the filibuster. Should or should it not go? Um, well, can we actually still remain true to American principles and, and what the American values and the culture of independence and free market, but not unbridled in, in hope and optimism and all those things that America stands for, can we do it better and more modern? And the answer is absolutely yes. I, I, I mean, the time is now to start discussing proportional representation. It, it, it is now's the time to talk about um, ballot change and ballot access laws. It doesn't mean we agree with the the parties or the affiliations or, or everyone's viewpoints, but it means that we're acknowledging everyone's humanity and everyone needs to come to the table because either we're going to perish as willing tribes or we're going to come together as a, um, we're going to perish as individual warring tribes or we will come together as a human collective and decide to do something different. Do you have a question there or anything? I'm on mute. I mean, I just want to kind of uh, mirror what I'm hearing you say is that really the power is in giving people a platform to speak and participate in this yep. country. And I mean, that's really what this country is about, isn't it? Like to my, to my recollection, um, you know, this, this country was established to give people a voice you know, for the people, by the people. And, you know, just because you're young, which in many times, being young is an advantage. Einstein said that flexibility is the essence of genius. And, and you, you typically find flexible thought in, in young developing minds, the future leaders of this world, right? Um, you know, so, so giving people that opportunity to participate, to be a yeah. part of the people, that is an incredible value add. And, uh, and like, I, I applaud your efforts. Thank you. And I can tell you that when I, when I came out of prison after 21 years, uh, at the transitional house that I went to, when I first, you know, you have to go and apply for general assistance. They give you this packet to vote. And I started filling it out, you know, and they said, you can't vote. You're on parole. And I'm like, I, I didn't know that. Why can't I vote? And that told me a lot about parole. And with CROP and another organization called Initiate Justice, we began to, to lead the efforts with, the, with the, uh, a bill called ACA6, which later on made it on the ballot called Prop 17. And the people of California voted in um, in a higher percentage than any other bill for us on parole to be able to have the right to vote. And now we ha we do have the right to vote while on parole. And what, and what that told me about parole was that it that really it wasn't about reintegration and it, and welcoming me back to society with my rights, even though the parole board had told me you are one of the two percent that come to their first hearing and are found suitable and we deem you no longer a threat to society. So we're going to set you free, but wait, not with all your rights. Mm -hmm. Right. 
So parole really wasn't um, to me about reintegration and welcoming back to my rights that were taken, but about an extended form of punishment, an extended form of punishment. And then now that I know I have the rights, there's something in me like, cool. I, I got all kinds of friends that are that, that are posting on Facebook and things like that. I went to vote today while on parole. There's that excitement that I get to be a part of the process. And yeah, I do think it would start uh, at crop organization. We talk about casting a vision for a future worth having, designing a, fi- a vision that is unprecedented that you could live into and making choices like that. And voting is definitely something that's built in built into this country where um, if you had that, it's empowering in some way. It's it's empowering for us to be able to step into um, creating that future. And I I really like the conversation that we talked about where you called it an apparatus for building fundamental shifts, fundamental shifts that will shape the reality of the future. We talk about that in terms of leadership and what you do in your personal life. And everybody talks about even even abolitionists like we believe we, we envision a system that could look like this. But then the negative thoughts come. And they say and we say, well, that could never happen. It'd be like 100 years. It's a utopian idea or we or Dr. King's ideas. And and so we make all these little micro shifts and nobody's pleased with the micro shifts. They, they, they really don't work. I saw on the news yesterday they're going to open up 72 more beds for mental health in San Francisco. And I thought that's a micro shift. Like, OK, it's great for 72 people. But is that is that really going to transform uh, the system for those who have mental health issues instead of putting them in prison? No. So I, I like I like that um, this conversation is around making fundamental shifts that will shift this society for a greater America. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would just like to add that when we talk about, which is relevant and timely, gerrymandering in this country, that's a huge issue right now. Let's talk about how the electorate itself is gerrymandered. I mean, there is a growing coalition and growing numbers, uh, I should say, of individuals who are independent voters, 21% and growing. 21% is, is a sizable minority or a sizable faction. There's 350 million people in this country. So we say, oh, 21% is less than 50% because that's how we're taught to do things and from a math and school standpoint. I got a 65 on the test, so anything above a 65 is good. 21% of 350 million. Now, I went to law school. Uh, I'm not a mathematician, so I'm not going to attempt to make a fool of myself by doing math uh, right now. Mm-hmm. But it, we know that 21% is well over 10 million people, right? So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, that just being said, we're well over at least 30 million people. There we go. So, see, I said I wouldn't do it, still did Um, So, you have over 30 million people in this country who are not pleased with even how the, the, the two-party system goes. But that percentage is not large enough to, to make a fundamental shift, to mm. say, well, I'm not trying to get rid of vanilla and chocolate. I'm just trying to allow for vanilla and chocolate to have more nuance in their conversation. And mm. that's why you give six arrows the right to vote and you give uh, incarcerated persons the right to vote, like total by 2023, if you include individuals who are currently 15, 16, and 17 year, years old, plus the incarcerated population, that alone is 14,428,687 individuals that you have now empowered to vote. That alone adds to potentially more independence, more people who want to say, I want to do something besides like whatever the big tent philosophy is of both parties. 
because we're killing ourselves. We're killing ourselves with our dialect. We're killing ourselves with our learning philosophy. We're killing ourselves with the, the, the back and forth between the two-party sort of system and then just subsuming of ideals. And this is too left. This is too right. This mm-hmm. is too libertarian. This is Trumpism. This is socialism. This is progressivism. Like, what does any of it mean anymore? And how does it actually apply? Right. You know, and, and what I'm hearing between you and Richard is like there's this this temptation for members of society to give themselves over to these limiting beliefs. And like it's it'll never be possible. Right. It'll never be possible for parolees to vote or for people who are currently incarcerated to vote. for six, Like it'll never happen. And but in these conversations, all they're really seeking to do is uh, Richard called them like micro. What is it? Micro what? Micro shifts, micro shifts, which is really compromise. Like I'm willing to compromise with you to this extent. And and how limiting is that as a society when we always have the option to collaborate, to collaborate, to work together to this unprecedented fundamental shift in our society and just work together like lock arms and say, we're going to make it happen together. And it's a win-win for both parties. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have, imagine if you have a Republican state, Kansas, it's saying we're going to give the prisoners the right to vote like that alone right there. Well, who do you think individuals that are incarcerated are going to remember as having given them the right to vote? If you have a blue state like New York saying, I'm going to give incarcerated persons the right to vote. We politics is all about relationships and it's all relational. So like they're going to remember from by way of party, like, Oh, this was the party that was in power when my humanity was acknowledged and how it's broken out. So it's an opportunity for, for, all states, all parties to win, and they can continue to argue all they want. But as people, there are a growing number of people that want to care about the issues, that want to talk about the issues. They don't care if it's left, if it's right, or what color you, you label as. It's it's what can we do to be better because it's exhausting. It, it, it is psychological duress that people are under from our everyday capitulation and willingness to go along with the status quo. Right. And one thing I think that everyone can agree with is we can do a lot better than 1.9 people in a box. Yes, that's for sure. Absolutely, Donald. Would um would you like to? Uh, I'd like you to close um with some um ways that people could reach out, potentially donate, follow you on social media, find your organization, Ohio Families United for Political Action and Change, and um if that, is that right? Uh, without the D, Ohio Families Unite for Political Action and Change, or www.ofupac.org. Okay. And um, um, how could people get involved? Is there is there opportunities to to volunteer? I mean, if you're going to take on a national effort to amend the Constitution, um, what 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 type of grassroots type of um, move do you need from the people? Well, yes, there is a way for people to get involved and we need individuals to have conversations about the issues just like we did today. Get on a Zoom, have a house party, have community meetings, invite people you know, don't know, uh, grow, get on Twitter spaces uh, every Tuesday, since we typically vote on a Tuesday. Why won't we have Tuesdays reserved as um, voting Tuesdays? Like we talk about issues related to voting every Tuesday, at least for 45 minutes around dinner time with friends, family, whoever it may be. But some of the step that's more minor that can be taken is you can go to our website. You can sign up for more information. Uh, we're preparing to launch a newsletter. Uh, we launched the Suffragist, but a 21st century spin. 
So if you want to join the movement um, and call your Congress member, pick up the phone, call your senator and call your Congress member and say, I believe and I want universal suffrage. Will you sponsor a bill in order to lower the voting age to 16 and guarantee incarcerated persons the right to vote? The more people, the more people call their members of Congress, the more the phones ring, the more that individuals engage and talk to one another and talk to their elected officials, the more salient the issue becomes. So it takes usually about 10 calls to become an issue for a congressional member. 20 really kind of gets their attention. 30, 40, 50, 60 is now like, hey, something's moving, something's happening. So uh, there needs to be a rising tide and a, a wave of just activism at every level of government, from calling your Congress member to calling your state assembly member and asking and your state senators, unless you're in Nebraska, which are everyone's a state senator since they have a unicameral house, kind of point that out, then you can actually begin to get traction on this issue. Then we can begin to say, well, what does the next four, five, six, seven years of humanity actually looks like? But in the, the short and sweet, you can go to our website, learn more information, and find ways to engage, because I know that was a mouthful. Thank you. And uh, we certainly didn't cover everything that we wanted to cover. So we, we would like to invite you to come back sometime uh, and, and talk about um, some of the other some of the other things we left off the table today. I feel like I would self betray if I didn't if I didn't say this. One of the things that I'm going to take away from this conversation is that when the idea of a 16 year old having the right to vote or a person that's in prison having the right to vote <clears throat> or what we're doing at crop with reimagining reentry and putting large amount uh, taking funding away from the prison system and putting it into housing uh, or one-stop shops where everything's under one umbrella or livable wage careers in tech why is it that our first our first thought is the negative what if what if we became aware what if we what if we became aware that we're doing that and 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 when we hear a new idea interrupt that first negative thought and say let me think about it. Let me let me let me envision it. Does it line up with the future that I imagine for this country instead of just trying to shoot it down? I don't know why we do that. Why it really doesn't matter. But what matters is interrupting that type of thinking and um, and really saying, does this does this is this possible and could this be? And um, does it line up with the future that I could imagine for for my children and their children to come? Thank you so much for being on the show. Jay, do you have any last word before we go? No, I can't wait to have you back. It was a, yeah. it was a thank you. thought-provoking conversation. Really love the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Been another episode of The Prison Post. You can find us all over social media, uh, The Prison Post, and also we're uh, a, a, a podcast that's under the umbrella of the Crop Organization. CropOrganization.org is where you can find us and, and at that name under social media as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our videocast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.